there is a regime change operation underway aimed at ousting the revolutionary government in Cuba. For decades, Washington has been sowing the seeds of social unrest, funneling millions of dollars to opposition groups and politicians with the aim of destabilizing the country in anticipation of a moment like this. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Super Exploitation and Resistance podcast, powered by Common Frontiers and allies in the Canadian labor movement. This podcast brings the voices of labor leaders, activists, organizers, and social movements to a North American audience. We share the perspectives of people on the front lines of social change and struggle in Latin America. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja, a Mexican freelance journalist based in Mexico City, with a decade of experience supporting social transformations and revolutionary struggles in Latin America through my work and activism. Raúl Burbano, a Colombian community organizer in Toronto and the program director for Common Frontiers, is our producer. The current situation in Cuba was sparked by protests by Cubans with legitimate grievances, such as shortages of food and power outages. We should be clear that the economic challenges facing Cuba are not unique to the country, but have been exacerbated by the brutal decades-long blockade of the country by the United States that was made stricter under Trump and has been left untouched by Biden. Further complicating life for Cubans has been the impact of the pandemic, the country heavily relies on the income from tourism, which has all but dried up as a result of travel restrictions, leading to an economic contraction of 11%, according to Economy Minister Alejandro Gil. The grievances are legitimate, but there's nothing authentic about the protests in Cuba nor the coverage of them. What we are witnessing is a manipulation by imperialism, counter-revolutionaries, and mainstream media outlets in an effort to try to channel these grievances into an effort to topple the government. In an interview for Redfish, a young Cuban by the name of Iramis Rosique Cárdenas laid it out clearly. He says, quote, Sunday's protests have to do with the successful harvest that the counter-revolution has achieved as a result of these crises, where the crisis of the pandemic, the escalation of sanctions, the worsening of the blockade, and the financial persecution have all come together. There is an exhaustion of the structures that have to do with social reproduction, caring, with the material reproduction of people's lives. So in this context, together with the media campaigns that Cuba is constantly being bombarded with on social media, opposition media, and international media, the counter-revolution has managed to connect with a sector of the people that has been most affected by these circumstances and activate them politically so that they promote their agenda, which is the agenda of the restoration of capitalism, end quote. If this sounds like a conspiracy, let me assure you that it is not. Since the triumph of the revolution, the U.S. has sought to constantly undermine it, from invasions such as the Bay of Pigs to countless assassination plots against former President Fidel Castro. In an article for Mint Press News, writer Alan McLeod showed how National Endowment for Democracy funding has gone towards supporting countless efforts aimed at undermining support for the revolution including efforts by Washington to infiltrate the Cuban art scene, which has played a large role in the current unrest. The manipulation of the images coming out of the protests in Cuba have also been galling, with many outlets running images of pro-government demonstrations 
and claiming they were anti-government, while deliberately refusing to air images of the pro-government rallies with proper captioning. On social media, images from other parts of the world were shared by journalists who claimed protests in places such as Egypt were instead taken in Cuba. In further proof that this op is following a script that we've seen before, an army of bots on Twitter was activated nearly immediately on Sunday as the protests took off, just as they were during the coup in Bolivia in 2019. The aim of hashtags such as SOS Cuba is to justify a so-called humanitarian intervention in the country. Make no mistake, in this case, an intervention should be seen as nothing but yet another tool in the efforts to promote regime change, as it was in 2019 with the so-called Venezuela Live Aid concert in Cúcuta, Colombia. The sad truth is that this manipulation is working on some. As Ajamu Buraka wrote in Black Agenda Report, quote, to confuse the populations and mobilize them against their own interests, the capitalists deploy not only their traditional liberal and conservative ideologues, they let loose the social imperialist intelligentsia, who are fundamentally anti-communist and Bersteinian social democratic at best, to provide left cover to an imperialist intrigue. This intrigue is framed as being in opposition to authoritarianism, a term and idea that bourgeois propagandists discovered through focus groups can be used to undermine left projects by mobilizing the sensibilities of the soft, materially corrupted, and NGO'd latte left in the United States and Western Europe. End quote. Which brings us to the topic of today's program internationalism. If there was ever a political revolution that embodied the values of proletarian internationalism, it is Cuba. The country that helped end apartheid in South Africa. The country that has sent doctors throughout the world on humanitarian missions to serve the most marginalized. The country that continues to inspire millions in Latin America and beyond through its achievements, despite being mere miles from the United States. Cuba has been there for the oppressed peoples of the world and now is the time for people to be there for Cuba and defend the revolution. Concretely, that means one thing for people living in the belly of the beast, calling for an end to the US blockade of the country. Now is not the time to air whatever differences you may have with the Cuban leadership. The internal contradictions are for Cubans to solve. Here I will quote Professor Max Isle, author of A People's Green New Deal. To support Cuba from the US doesn't give license to the Cuban government to resolve its internal contradictions in a way which doesn't serve the people. It means actively defending, in a real and material way, the state and sovereignty as the shell within which to resolve internal contradictions. It means acting on the contradiction we are in a place to act upon, that of imperialism or the embargo. And it means Understanding that action upon the embargo is preceded by the creation of a cognitive atmosphere within the left that is capable of acting upon history so as to force an end to the embargo. End quote. The best way for people to help Cubans right now is to work to end the blockade. From its inception, the blockade was designed, in the words of one U.S. State Department official, to quote, 
bring about hunger, desperation, and overthrow of government, end quote. It is not some misguided attempt to punish the political leadership of the revolution, as I saw one user on Twitter claim. Far from being interested in helping the people of Cuba, U.S. policymakers have presently tried to actually tighten the screws on Cuba during the pandemic in hopes of producing the very unrest we've seen recently. Only last month, for the 29th consecutive time, the United Nations General Assembly overwhelmingly voted to reject the U.S. blockade of Cuba by a vote of 184 to 2, with only the United States and Israel voting against it. On our program, we're going to focus what it means to be an internationalist. And I hope that by the end of the program, you will see why this moment calls not for nuance about the contradictions of the Cuban Revolution, but rather a firm defense of it in the name of proletarian internationalism. To explore this topic, we're going to shift gears and talk about Cuba's closest ally in the region, Venezuela, which recently hosted people from different popular and social movements from Latin America, Asia, Europe, and North America to take part in the Congreso Bicentenario de los Pueblos del Mundo, or the Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples of the World. The Congress provided a space to facilitate networking for movements and organizations and advance the cause of the working class and the oppressed at a global level. It is yet another example of the central role that internationalism plays in Venezuela's Bolivarian Revolution. We will speak with Isam Kawaja, a medical doctor, graduate of a Cuban training program, who himself lived in Cuba for 12 years, and today serves as General Vice Secretary of the Popular Unity Party in Jordan. He is a member of the platform of the anti-imperialist working class in the Arab world, and he recently traveled to Caracas, Venezuela, as a delegate to the Congreso Bicentenario de los Pueblos. But we begin today's program with Michelle Munjanatu, a member of the creative committee of this podcast and an international solidarity organizer living in New York City, expert on Latin American issues, who also participated in the Congreso Bicentenario de los Pueblos. Hi, Michelle Menjanato. How are you doing? Thanks for being on the show with us. Hi, Raul and Jose Luis. Thank you so much for inviting me on and for making time for this really critical topic, which is internationalism and connecting Palestine and Venezuela. Yeah, and so you were recently in Venezuela. There was lots of delegations from Palestine. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing there? What was the importance uh, for folks in the North? Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, Ju June 24th represents the 200th anniversary and celebration of the bicentennial of the Battle of Carabobo, which was a historic battle. It was, you know, won in favor of Venezuelans and it, and it represents their first independence. And the refrain I continued to hear over and over again throughout this Congress was, Carabobo is hoy. So the Battle of Carabobo is today. And in fact, yes, Venezuelans are fighting for their, they're fighting for the second time for their national sovereignty in the face of a, a criminal and genocidal blockade, um, but with much, much, with a lot of support from, from their international friends. So I think this is a really critical period and a critical moment for international solidarity. Yeah, it's interesting because I think one of the basic principles of the Bolivarian Revolution has always been internationalism. In fact, even the name Bolivarianism, Bol La Revolución Bolivariana, it speaks to this historic moment where there was the unity of the peoples of Latin America fighting for their first independence. So, but we know that Venezuela is obviously facing a lot of attacks internationally. What role has the 
internationalism and that internationalist vision had in helping defend the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela? That is a really great framing, Jose Luis. Um, I I can't tell you how much I have to interact with internationalism when I interact with Venezuelans. Like when I went in 2019 for the first time, I was at a meeting at the foreign ministry um, for North America and they were talking about the coup that just happened in Nicaragua. It was like my second day in the country and they wanted to be sure that they used their time meeting with an American delegation, with a North American delegation, to talk about the coup that had happened in 2018 in Nicaragua. And in that same visit, they were talking about what had happened to Syria and the destruction of Libya, which had been the most um, prosperous Arab um, African nation prior to 2011. So there is no way to understand or interact with Venezuela without becoming imbricated without becoming like just swept up in the need for internationalism because Venezuelans from those building their community in Los Pioneros to the the most revolutionary commune in Nantimano, they know, they know their history. I, you know, there are people wearing face masks with Qasem Soleimani at these communes. You know, what is that? That speaks to their high level of consciousness, which is a product of the Bolivarian Revolution, but also their care, their genuine care for what is happening to the peoples of the world. And they know who they know who the vanguard of the struggle is, and they're going to pay attention. And you, you said something interesting that, you know, they talked to you, they wanted to make sure they got this message to the North American delegation. How do you view your role as an anti-imperialist, as a solidarity activist living in, in the belly of the beast, as Che Guevara used to say, you know, I'm envious of you, you have the most important fight of all. But you, as, a, as an activist, how do you interpret that? How do you feel that responsibility? And what's the kind of thing that you're telling people when they talk to you about the situation that they're living as a result of U.S. sanctions, for example? Yeah, I mean, I don't really view myself as North American. It's been very hard to be here. Um, you know, I look at myself as part of the international proletariat. And frankly, I just have experiences that are more more aligned with experiences in the global south. And so I think there is an instant camaraderie and an instant understanding. It helps that I can speak other languages because that also helps build and foster connections. And I think that's very important for internationalists in the North to really understand and learn other languages um, if they really want to shift our way away from a white-centric, northern-centric empire. But what I view my role is to make struggle possible. I've been working a little bit with housing organizing after the most recent war. And in so many ways, as someone in North America, we have to make possible discursive struggle. We have to normalize discursive struggle. We have to normalize things like armed resistance, which is, you know, in so many ways in Venezuela and even in Palestine, the way that you can back up a revolutionary process is armed resistance, a willingness to defend it in battle. Yeah, as Chavez used to say, you know, a revolution is peaceful, but it is not unarmed, right? Nuestra revolución exactly. es pacífica, pero no sin armas. Exactly. Like, how do you back up the gains of a revolution? So to me, I think discursive struggle is very important and also... Um, allowing for a process to unfold. Like, as I mentioned, like the consciousness level, the social consciousness is so high in Venezuela. I have so much confidence that the struggle will continue, that resolu that contradictions will be resolved. And 
the engines of the revolutionary process will continue. They have everything they need there. All I need to do is to normalize talking about it in North America, but also really point to it as a symbol um, and a and a vanguard of of our all our workers' struggle, right? Like what they're doing in the reclaim Kellogg's factory in 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 Aragua really matters to us as North Americans, to me as a union worker. Um, and in, you know, uh, just to touch on the last word of your question, when I speak to Venezuelans, I just affirm them, you know, they're working so hard. You know, I can see it. They're on the verge of tears in every factory, in every moment. They're like, they're working so hard. They're working on fumes. And, you know, I think a little bit of acknowledgement and recognition that they are indeed the vanguard. They're doing so much to save all of us. Like that goes a long way. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of how I've been approaching things right now. Mm -hmm. The Bolivarian Revolution has, has always been sort of at the vanguard uh, in the last couple of decades. And as you mentioned, that level of consciousness is key. And they've built, obviously, links with struggles around the world. And obviously, the Palestinian struggle is a, you know, a similar struggle. It's under attack by colonialism, Zionism, uh, in an apartheid type of war. Uh, and I know that there was a delegation in Venezuela. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of that nexus, the links between these struggles, why it's so important and how and what came out of that kind of building? Yeah, I um, I really love that question. And um, I want to take us back to November, I believe, 2020, when President Maduro encouraged the working class to create an anti-imperialist working class platform. It was a suggestion by my Maduro, but... Very quickly, the working class is obliged in, in Venezuela, and Raul actually um, attended one of their meetings in December 2020, and I tagged on, um, it was like just for a hangout, I tagged on very shortly, but then instantly I became involved in this project, which was connecting people across five continents, and it is that of, of building a real understanding of anti-imperialism as proletarian internationalism, and I will say that the strongest branches of this platform, which in Arabic, the sorry, in Spanish, the acronym is PECOA, um, they're strongest in Latin America and the Arab world. I just think that's fascinating. That speaks to lifelong relationships that have built through struggle and through being there, even in tough times. I really was picking up on that um, as I was part of a delegation of 10 people touring different workers' productive councils was Everyone there had been in relationship with the Bolivarian process for years and had it, they had made it point to come here during June 24th, you know, as Venezuela's in another battle for its sovereignty. Um, but specifically to the Palestinian case, um, it was fascinating. It was so fascinating to be with people who can't even meet in any land together. That meeting of people from Gaza, from the West Bank, from Jordan, and also there was an Iraqi member, that could have happened very easily anywhere in, in the Levant, for example, but it happened in Caracas. And why did it happen in Caracas? We have to ask that question. Because Maduro, because Venezuela, along with Bolivia, along with Cuba, along with Nicaragua, have been steadfast defenders of the Palestinian cause have refused and rejected normalization with Israel. And, and you know, like, there, you know, Venezuelans are always saying, like, el amor con amor se paga. Like, if you do things with love, you'll be, be paid back with love. So 
I, they, I can't really talk about this in a dialectical way other than through great struggle and, and being very disciplined, new alliances and strong alliances are forged. I was wondering uh, what maybe you can attribute this this sense of, of unity, this sense of proletarian internationalism that exists between Latin America and the Arab world. Um, because I think about my experiences as an organizer in North America, and it's been a while since I've been there. Maybe Raul can fill in the gaps here, but I always sense that there was, there was a prevailing sort of sense of cynicism as a kind of a, a very negative attitude. And sometimes, to, to my disappointment, it translates into this uh, desire to criticize every effort at building socialism in the world, as if that's that's their role, you know? And I think, obviously, criticism is important, but, you know, they place that before international solidarity. So I'm wondering, what do you think that difference is due to that we see in terms of the expression of solidarity that we see from places like the U.S. and Canada, which is, you know, who the audience we're trying to reach here, and different parts of the world that, you know, is obviously willing to, in conditions of duress, not only send people, but also Venezuela under conditions of duress to receive people. I think there's clear understanding in the periphery because it's always been about anti-colonial struggle. It's always been about battling for sovereignty. So when you're always in battle, you have to be very clear. Like in Nicaragua, you have to be very clear about what's happening so you can protect the gains of a revolution. You have to be very clear and you have to constantly re-articulate it for yourself and also for your children as they're coming up, as they're becoming developed into cadre it, for your party. Um, but also, I mean, if people are so hungry, they're so hungry to continue living. Like I was... Um, I don't remember what factor it was, but it was, I just remember my Jordanian colleagues just being so desperate to know what are the alternatives to building under sanctions when you are sanctioned, when, when you need a way forward. And, you know, they were asking their Venezuelan colleagues, they were wanting to learn from Iranians. <laughs> Do you think in the, in the global North, there is that desperation to learn? No, we, we want to make sure, oh, is this an okay source for us to use? No, when this is a battle for survival, you don't care where the information's coming from. You just look at the people who are successful. Look at Iran, who has developed so many um, endogenous industries, right? Like, that's amazing. Why don't we celebrate that more? They have, they have been sanctioned for so many years and they're providing models. In fact, they're helping with re-engineering in Venezuela. Like, I think that's incredible. It's like, are you in a battle for death or not? Because if you are in a battle for death or life, you're going to want to, you know, it's going to change your positioning toward social movements of the global south. I even think about Cuba and its effort to develop vaccines, right? They have been able to develop this pharmaceutical industry on the island as a result of the sanctions. And it shows the, the capacity, the creativity. And now they've developed something that they're going to be able to, to give to the rest of Latin America, you know, which we can't count on COVAX, for example, because as we know, Venezuela made its payments to make to, to receive vaccines through the COVAX program, and it was blocked by the banks due to U.S. sanctions, and now they're not even able to do that. It's like they're literally ripping off the people in the most desperate ways. Meanwhile, you have Cuba anxious to, to ramp up its capacity to produce these vaccines to give them away. We're almost at the end here, but I did want to close with a bit of a discussion about the utility of these kinds of congresses. Obviously, it was a very good experience. 
Uh, and for Venezuela to be able to host this, it does require a public investment. And there is some discussion, you know, is this a worthwhile public investment by the Venezuelan state when, you know, we still have a situation produced by, by the economic sanctions where people are struggling to put food on their table or there's not enough diesel to get goods around, you know? It, from your point of view, was this a worthwhile endeavor? And also, similarly, when people talk about, like, oh, these are government-sponsored tours, so of course they're only going to see, uh, you know, did you have the chance to also see some of the contradictions of what it actually means to build socialism, you know, in, in a country like Venezuela? That's a great question. Um, I want to clarify that I... Uh I bought my own way to Venezuela, and um, most people did have um, their room and board covered during the Congress, but I also paid my way for a labor delegation uh, that was sponsored by the PICOA. So for the most part, I, you know, this is something I chose to be uh, at. Um, as for the commitment to kind of public spending like this and, and uh, something that seemingly benefits internationalists or people traveling from abroad, I do understand that concern. But also it speaks to a level of trust in your own project that when you bring people here and you make them face the contradictions Venezuelans are facing, that they'll come away with an understanding of what's actually at play here, that they'll come away wanting to create space to talk about sanctions, um, wanting to learn from worker productive councils, wanting to learn from worker struggle Maybe they might want to create projects of reclaiming unused government land or unused private land um, and build as Los, los uh, Pioneros did. Um, so, you know, it's incredible. Like, I think I've been to Venezuela three times now, and every time I've been connected with North American internationalists. We don't connect in North America. We connect in Caracas. So even that is incredible. So Venezuela with these conferences and with these like um, with these meetings not only is connecting us to other Venezuelans working class Venezuelans people working for the government others they're connecting us in our own countries right uh, I think that's fascinating I think that's incredible um, and it's also really really hard to be an internationalist in North America there are you know there are people from Black Lives Matter Oklahoma on my trip and it's hard it's really difficult to continue to build and to continue to push forward. But when we're connected with people in Venezuela and also then connected with each other, that helps us understand where the struggle must continue. And and say also that like, while these look like new things, my colleague from Oklahoma was saying, everything that we're building here feels very new, but also very old because we're building it with old friends. And that speaks to the level of friendship that the Bolivarian revolution has cultivated for so long. Um, so I do want to reflect on that. While the formation might look new, I was being connected with um, Colombian unionists, with Mexican unionists, like in, in Venezuela, and they've all or organically had their own relationships with Venezuela. So I hope that helps um, add some color to that dynamic. I think, you know, just to add a little bit, it's hard to quantify sometimes what's, what's the benefit of having delegations come together so often. But I think in the end, when you build that kind of unity and trust, and I think it's really about building trust, right? It's hard to build movement and hard to build a revolution if there's no trust, right? It's really easy to say, okay, I need your help when something happens. But you know, usually that comes you know, with building trust, relationships, and you know, that's that's the basics of those conferences. You know, you might often not a lot comes out in terms of you know coalitions or, or work, but it builds a sense of trust. I understand your struggle, you understand my struggle, 
And when we go back home, we know there's a link, you know, right? So we've talked to people who have been in this for long, for decades, and it's really started when they went to, you know, Venezuela for our delegation 20 years ago. And today they're working, whatever it is, whether it's in their, you know, in their home, in their town, uh, under a similar gaze, right? Anti-imperialist, anti-colonial struggle. So, yeah, I know it's, it's hard to quantify this, but they are critical and we need them, especially during COVID when, you know, less and less we're coming together. I think that is the kind of the goal of the right wing and the opposition is to keep us isolated because then we think that we're ineffective. But then when we come together to these meetings, we realize, wow, we're all actually struggling, having victories, having challenges, but we are all struggling together. And if we work together, there's a possibility for, for radical change. I know certainly personally, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Venezuela. When I went in 2005 for the World Festival of Eastern Students, there was a huge change in my political consciousness, you know, and I'm grateful and I owe that debt to Venezuela forever. So thank you so much for, for, for joining us. This was an amazing discussion. I'm really grateful that we have you here as part of our creative committee as well and helping us make this program. If you have a message that you want to share for people. The struggle continues. Please pay attention to Venezuela. We are watching a new vanguard of anti-imperialist struggle rise, and let's do our best part in the global north to, to make it easier. For our next segment, we will hear from Hisam Kawasha, graduate of a Cuban medical training program who serves as General Vice Secretary of Popular Unity Party in Jordan. He is a member of the platform of the anti-imperialist working class in the Arab world. In this first part, Isam shares with us his understanding of internationalism and how events like the Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples held in Venezuela, where he served as a delegate, can foster the kinds of relationships needed to advance the interests of the international working class and all of the just causes in the world. He passed 12 years in Cuba, and this, I think, when they talk about internationalism, internationalism I've seen, I've seen, I've lived in Cuba for 12 years, so when people talk about internationalism, I have seen, I have felt how it is exercised. One of the principal causes that drives us to be in solidarity with all of the just causes in the world. So when we talk about the Bolivarian Revolution, we feel that the cause behind this revolution is our cause as well, and we must defend it, as we must defend all of the causes of all of the people. Because, in reality, our enemy is the same. The one exploiting us is the same be it in Latin America, Africa, Asia, and even developed countries, and we, the exploited, are in the same trench. We have known about the Bolivarian Revolution practically since the day that Hugo Chavez won the presidency in 1999. And despite the fact that we are geographically far away, we feel that this project is one that represents us, with the same causes as us, to defend the rights and the interests of the people. There was a very important moment in the development of the Bolivarian Revolution, which garnered the attention of the Arab peoples, when Chavez broke the blockade of Iraq and visited Baghdad, defying imperialism and showing his solidarity not with just the Iraqi people, but he showed his solidarity with the just causes of the Arab peoples, including the Palestinian cause. So this garnered a lot of attention for this project that is being created in Latin America. It strengthened this feeling and conviction that there really is a very deep anti-imperialist project that is being developed in Latin America, in addition to what Cuba represents. We have Cuba and we also have Chavez's project, which is the Bolivarian Revolution. In our last visit to Venezuela, not only during the Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples, where there was representatives from dozens of countries in the world, everyone agreed on the need to support this revolutionary project, 
but at the same time, we could see represented there the causes of the peoples of the world. There is an important element there, which you give great importance to, which is the link between the struggles for the rights and interests of the working class with the topics, themes, interests, and the struggles of the peoples, their fight for their sovereignty, independence, and self-determination. This link between the class struggle and the fight for independence, sovereignty, and self-determination we consider to be very unique, and it seems to be the first time there is such a clear focus on this. I don't want to say there wasn't a focus on this before, but for us in the platform of the anti-imperialist working class in the Arab world, we consider it to be an important element, and we identify with this because in Palestine we suffer from class exploitation and the exploitation by the occupation of Palestinian territory. I think the Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples has been a very important tribune to really strengthen relationships. We have met with comrades, compañeros, and brothers from different countries, from Europe, from the United States, Canada, Latin America, all the countries of the world. We feel like we've known them for a long time. We defend the same cause. We met compañeros from Black Lives Matter, different social organizations. This Congress really allowed us to consolidate relationships, and we can build from this in the future. One key element worth keeping in mind when thinking about internationalism is that solidarity is a two-way street. Isam tells us about the historical relationship between Latin America and the Arab world. The Palestinian cause and the fight of the Arab peoples against the Zionist occupation and imperialist aggressions by British, French, and North American colonialism has been a banner of struggle for progressive forces in Latin America since even before they achieved power. At the same time, the struggle of the peoples of Latin America against imperialism was not foreign to the Palestinian people, the Arab peoples. The example of Cuba is the most obvious, but also we could speak of Nicaragua, El Salvador, the various countries where a process of struggle has developed, be it political or the armed struggle as well. So that link has always existed. Now, at the Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples, is one of the historic moments where a more concrete expression of solidarity is made about causes being interlinked. At the Congress, a resolution that we consider to be historic was adopted, because for practically the first time, a wide gamut of representatives of political, social, and workers' movements, which unites different countries of the world from five continents, considers the Palestinian cause using the Nakba, or catastrophe, as its starting point. The UN resolution, for example, talks about the cause starting June 1967. We as Palestinian people as Arabs view this focus does reflect the truth of the Palestinian fight because it did not begin in 1967, did not begin during the occupation of Cisjordan and the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights. The Palestinian cause has been a reality for a century. So the resolution at the Congress shows that the Palestinian cause in a concrete way begins from the Nakba in 48. And this resolution demands the right of return for the Palestinian people, their self-determination, and also the right for them to establish their state in their historic territory that extends from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. 
We consider the adoption of this resolution at the Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples to be an important advance in the comprehension of our cause. Finally, in our last clip from Isam, he tells us about the state of the anti-imperialist struggle today. Hay un cambio, condiciones nuevas, un escenario nuevo. There is a change, a new scenario, where, in the first place, anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism have been consolidated within the consciousness of the people. In the second place, imperialism has had its capacity to bite reduced. It used to threaten war. It threatened with potential destruction. But now it isn't capable of that, although at any moment, in a crazed moment, they could use weapons of mass destruction. But we are in a historic moment where imperialism can at least turn to a military intervention to impose its will. We have seen how in the resistance of peoples, sometimes what determines what side wins and what side loses does not come down to the technological development of weapons. Instead, it is the will and conviction that which one has for their cause. When we talk about Gaza, for example, Gaza resisted for 11 days using weapons that were incomparable to Israeli army weaponry. But the side that was negotiating and truly wanted to end the conflict was not the Palestinian side, despite the pain, despite the sacrifices, despite the destruction, the destruction of homes, the displacement of families and the poverty. Oh, the side that wanted it to end, conflict to no longer continue, was the Israeli side because they could not endure. We are in this situation because the people are willing to die, because they don't have an alternative. We must defend our dignity. Because dying with dignity is better than living under the boot of colonialism. That's just one example. If we look at history, there are others. We could speak about the struggle of Vietnam, for example. Military power is an important factor, but it is not the fundamental factor. When there is conviction and will and a cling to one's dignity and the right to live free, that is the most important factor for victory. There is still the economic war, blockades, sanctions that could have implications. Imperialism is still strong, it has not fallen, but it has lost a lot of strength, has lost a lot of influence. At a global level, the amount of geopolitical influence on the part of U.S. imperialism, mainly, has regressed. It has tried to reorganize, but I think we are winning battles in this war that has not yet ended. And the future, future belongs to the people. I can't think of a better note to end today's program on than that. I recently attended a demonstration here in Mexico City in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution. I must confess that witnessing the expressions of love and solidarity from Mexicans towards Cuba was incredibly moving. Cuba no está sola. To our listeners in North America, I mentioned that Cuba has been there for the oppressed peoples of the world, and that now it is time for people to be there for Cuba and defend the revolution. I hope the conversations we brought you today helped you understand why it is still indispensable that those who believe in fighting for a better world must practice internationalism in their political work. Demand an end to the U.S. blockade of Cuba. That's the program for today. Thank you again for listening. Please share this program with your friends and colleagues. If you like the show, leave us a review. It really helps us reach more people. As always, we want to thank the supporters of the show, especially Common Frontiers and the Canadian Labour Movement. Special thanks to the creative team behind the operations. Guillaume Charvino Quintal, Dr. André Gacuin, Michel Mungenatu, and Pamela Arancivia. We close today's program with a rendition of Leon Gieco's Solo Le Pido Adiós, recorded live from the demo in solidarity with Cuba here in Mexico City. See you next time. And now more than ever, these words ring true. 
Hasta la victoria, siempre. Solo le pido a Dios que el dolor no me sea indiferente, que la reseca muerte no me encuentre, o si hoy solo sin haber hecho lo suficiente. Solo le pido a Dios que lo injusto no me sea indiferente, que no me abofeten la otra mejilla después de que una garra me arañó esta suerte. Solo le pido a Dios que la guerra no me sea indiferente, es un monstruo grande y pisa fuerte Toda la pobre inocencia de la gente Es un monstruo grande y pisa fuerte Toda la pobre inocencia de la gente